If it smells like urine, it's probably urine. This is your host, Jordan Risky of the Nimrods Podcast, brought to you by Risky Outdoors and Prime Archery. Um, again, guys, we're going to start off. Apex Gear has a promo code for you guys. Simply use Risky, R-I-S-K-E, all caps, um, and you receive 20% off your purchase. So go over to apexgear.com, sights, quivers, anything, accessories that you need for your bow. Um, some pretty sweet stuff. I'm going to be running their three-pin sight this year, or their four-pin adjustable. Um, I got their new stabilizer just put on my bow. Um, I've been having some balance issues with with everything and I just leveled everything out and bow is sitting perfectly in my hand now I was able to adjust some weights off on my sidebar um, and out on the front and just leveled everything out perfectly after getting sights quiver um, I do hunt with my quiver so pretty awesome that I could get everything situated gear is it's nice so get over there apex gear Pick yourself up some sweet new new uh, accessories for the bow. Um, this podcast is one that I've been trying to put together for a while um, with a good buddy from college, uh, Chris Rika. Um, first was really good friends with Jake, and then I got to meet Chris just through school and fell in love with deer hunting. And we found out that we both love deer hunting and just. Yeah, Chris and I talked quite a bit, so I was I was excited to get him on here and um, just kind of hear about his journey and the way he attacks the whitetail woods and, uh, yeah, just kind of BS with him. But another big, humongous congratulations to Jake and Anna. Um, just welcomed their first child into the world, Joshua. Um, just an amazing young man already. Um, <laughs> I was the first one to meet the, meet the little guy. Um, I went up, took him some, some lunch and didn't realize it, but no one else has been into the hospital room. And then here I am. Um, but just a, a huge blessing to their family, um, to, to bring in a nice, healthy young man. So, um, congratulations again, Jake and Anna, but, um, we're going to jump right into this. We're going to get Chris and Jake on the phone. Um, and get rolling. All right, so we have Chris Rika on the phone with Jake and I here. Um, Chris is a friend of Jake and I both. Um, kind of went to college together. That's kind of how I first met Chris. Um, Jake and him were buddies long before that. But um, yeah, big deer hunter, turkey hunter, man of the woods, loves chatting whitetails. And this has been a podcast that I've kind of been excited about for a long time. So, Chris, I just want you to come on, kind of tell a little bit about yourself, what you do. Yeah, give us the spiel. Born and raised, well, not born in southern Michigan, but basically raised in southern Michigan, the central part of the state. Um, my dad bought a 15-acre property when we were when I was in fifth grade. And that kind of started the love for the outdoors. Unfortunately, for the whitetail side of things, it all began with fishing. But as time went on, fishing kind of took a back burner. Watch your dad kill a big deer. Um, just meet some friends over time that had killed some big deer. And the love for whitetails 
really started to flourish with time. Certainly some of the people I met at Spring Arbor helped with that, but just continue to meet people who are big hunters over the years. And one of our good friends who's already been on the podcast was definitely instrumental in kind of starting to fuel my fire for whitetails. But really the crazy part for me is I just continue to meet uh, whitetail hunters across the state. I've met a few outside of the state that have taught me a lot about things in other states, which has kind of opened my eyes, but I just continue to meet a lot of hunters and pick their brain for whatever hints, tactics, strategies they might have. I've definitely tried to pick the brains of a few of the guys that have been on this podcast already and many other podcasts that I've listened to. And it's just been a fun journey. Um, I'd say about 2012 was the first year I really launched into the whitetail world. Before that, it was kind of just something we did as a family. And I think I quickly exceeded my dad and brothers on a drive for just whitetail hunting. They, they kind of hunt everything. They've done a lot of elk hunting and they're both pretty into fishing still. Uh, whereas I've kind of veered primarily into whitetails. I've definitely slowed down with the two kids, but it's still something I think about on a pretty regular basis. Daily basis, Chris? Well, Jordan and I are part of this group that kind of keeps the fire going. It's, it's slowed down from what it was for sure. Definitely for probably four or five years there, I definitely thought about them almost every day. And it's kind of how I structured my entire calendar. But at the moment, you know, it's not like it was. However, I, I did really want to go scouting tonight because it's really cold out and if, if it wasn't for the podcast, I probably would have arranged to do it, but I figured that was too much in one night, so I just say I'm, I'm not trying to cut you off, but uh, um, we'll get into this in a minute. But Anna, my wife and I just had her first kid Saturday morning. Just got him home yesterday afternoon. My mother-in-law's here, and he was doing pretty good. So my wife and I quick ran down to Frosty King and uh, picked up some milkshakes, and I was I was definitely taking a little bit longer drive and we'll just <laughs> the so, uh, I almost missed the podcast a little bit too but no, I, that's so funny because I was Cassandra and I went to Chick-fil-A tonight for dinner because that's how healthy we are we, we don't like cooking so right. I went to Chick-fil-A and on the way back she's complaining about how dirty my truck was Jake knows this It's that's a reoccurring thing um, and I'm like, I'm going to drop you off at home and go down by the property and drive around the block a couple times because I want to film Merlot because I, I know he's, he's around there, the buck that we've been chasing. And she's like, I think you need to film your or record your podcast and clean your truck tonight. You can go scout tomorrow. So I was like, gosh, dang it. So we were all in the same boat, boys. Wait a second, though. You, you called me a little earlier today and you were like out by the property though were you scouting then or was that too early i can't remember you called me. that was that was too early i i had to run out there um i had to drop off some seed because i didn't want it sitting in my truck when it's like 90 degrees in my truck um yeah so yeah so that's why i ran out there food plot seed. it's a great time of year right just you, you, you take drives a little differently you always have binoculars 
you're finding different creative ways to like drive different routes to get somewhere really simple just so you can get some eyes on some good fields and stuff it's just I don't know it's a fantastic time of year man it is so Chris do you have any potential bucks that you're kind of keen in on this year at all Oh, there's one with a split G2 from last year. I hope he makes it, but at this point, I don't have any intel on if he's still alive. Okay. Um, mainly because of a lack of scouting at this point. Uh, pretty soon, I'll, I'll be out there. Like I said, I was really thinking about it tonight. I thought about it the previous night, too, because it's been cold two nights in a row now, but this wasn't in the cards. It's still... I still feel like the Bucks have a week or two, maybe even three for some, before they're fully grown. So after scouting so hard for, I think, three, three summers, I've just realized you can watch them grow all summer and it's fun, but it's not until they're fully grown where you see all the details of the rack and for sure be able to kind of tell what they've become. So I'm not, I'm not as in a rush as I used to be. Yeah. As now, <clears throat> I know a little bit in Jackson, but kind of in the area that you're in, um, are any of your guys' bean fields like burn up like pretty bad? Not that I've seen. And no. Actually, Chelsea. I live in Chelsea specifically, and the the rain totals have been incredible the past two weeks. I believe it's been really? just been nuts. I, how's it been by you guys? I mean, I. Higher. It, we got hit like really hard for like two days, but it was like one of those like too much in those two days. And right. my the biggest bean field where I've been like seeing all these bucks, um, it's probably a, I don't know, 15, 20 acre bean field. And it's been holding it like a bachelor group. I know they've been bedding on the edge of this woods and in this orchard and then funneling out at night. In into this bean field, but last uh, last time I drove by there, the bean field looked a little dry, and I drove by it tonight, and it's I mean you got like maybe six inch bean stalks, and they're like brown. They're like they're pretty much done. It's crazy. Wow. But then you have, have a, you seen that before? Uh not here. Never here. I mean, I've only, we've only owned this property for a year, and last year that was corn. But the funny thing is, across the road, but it's it's kind of down in a valley. There's a bean field, and it's like beautiful. I mean, it's it's growing like crazy, but it's tiny. But the big one is, it's done. I, I there's there's no way they're gonna harvest anything out of it, which is crazy. So I don't even know if they're going to be out there. Um, there's a big hay field that Jake and I actually drove by and watched them in for a while. Um, and that was that was cut the other day. So I don't know if they're going to be in that, but we'll see. I don't know. I was just curious. Yeah, that's that's very rare uh, around here. I've never seen a field straight burn up. And I didn't. I didn't mention what we do. We work on the business side of agriculture. It's all research and statistic based, and it's definitely been a rough planting year. But typically, once the seeds are in the ground, um, the crops do very well because of all the genetic modification to the to the seeds. They're very 
um, drought resistant, and they just seem to do amazing with limited rain and lots of heavy sun. So that's surprising. I don't know if he's using an older seed or just his field has got some nutrient issues or what's causing those beans to do that, but it's tough to hear. I will say, though, I drove down to Dayton, Ohio for a wedding this past weekend, and there were just so many unplanted fields along 75. It was a wild thing to see. Yeah. And Ohio is one of those states that produces a lot of big deer, so it's going to be some tough hunting for some of those guys without food sources unless they got food plots or, you know, maybe the guys with crops in the area are going to have a lot more deer than they normally do. Gotcha. My my buddy Dave got married in Ohio, and we went down there, and that was kind of um, during the spring, and we, they were getting hammered with rain, just kind of like we were. Um, and that was a big concern all of, and he got married, he married a girl that lived in a, a very rural, like farm community. And there was a lot of farmers at this wedding. And, uh, a couple of us guys that sat around a table and talked to a couple of them that own like really large, large farms. And we were talking to them and they were, they were at the point of deciding if they're going to take crop insurance or if they were going to actually try to plant because running into that issue, like you said, I, and I bet a lot of them did. They just were like, we, there's no way we're going to be able to get our, you know, get things planted. And the field that Jake and I got access to get to the south end of our property um, wasn't planted this year. So it's going to it's going to be strange. It's going to be weird hunting. But because it was crops all last year and now this year it's not yeah it's been crops for the past like I don't know 10-15 years and this is the first year he said that they haven't got it planted is it that one does he lease that out yeah he leases it out okay and um, luckily they got the field in across the street it's corn and the field kind of like just to the north where there's an easement between like a hedgerow for this farmer to get through but this field specifically the the west end is up on a high on a hill and he said he could have planted it but it's a seven acre field and he's like i'm not gonna plant like two acres and yeah yeah, i know exactly that's ah dude that sucks yeah but i don't know I, i mean it's growing up so it could be like a wicked good cover in kind of like an open air i mean i don't know so it'll be it'll be interesting i think it's gonna be interesting hunting all over um I know Holtons are are doing a different crop rotation this year. I want to say he's planting a couple of their big fields. Uh, their wheat their was coming off this week, and I want to say he was planting sorghum, and they've never had sorghum out there. So it'll just be it'll be interesting to see different different. Yeah, that'll be sweet, dude. Yeah. to get out there for like a like a dove hunt or something. Yeah. Late winter, spring, or whatever. I don't know when dove dove season is, but sorghum's like legendary bird hunting yeah Riker you do a lot of pheasant hunting don't you or used to just just tower shoots we've done which Jake's done one a one I believe with us and um so those are all planted birds they're not natural but it's it's always been fun and it we've always done it down in your area where you grew up so yeah. Kind of a small little world, but it, is. it was a fun. It was a fun tradition. A bunch of guys from Chelsea did for probably five to seven years, and it's just kind of faded out over time. Because I think it became 
almost too normal, I guess. But those first few years were really fun, and it was, it was we made some good memories together. Yeah, I drove by that ranch on Saturday. I was looking out there, and they have all their like different rows of different things planted, and just beautiful bird habitat. It was pretty cool to well, just kind of see because I haven't been down there in a long time. But I took my nephew down to the river down there, so. But yeah, it'll show the deer hunter and me. I I would always go in there and just stare at the mounts on the wall. Um, <laughs> I have kind of a bad habit of that. I I made a out of two-year habit of going to the white teal museum off of 94 in grass lake and just kind of soaked in all the really big mouths in there and got to talk to the owner a few times and and then also watch the genetically modified bucks grow like crazy that was that was a fun little time my son enjoyed feeding them the apples they give you i was it's so funny i was there on last weekend and they have you know how they usually have like that one in there that's just a mega giant? I mean, they have a couple in there now that are just, they're freaks. It's pretty cool. Yeah, his, he's had a couple offspring. Uh, he's got names for all of them, but yeah, his offspring are good. It, it just shows, and I've talked to a lot of buddies and totally believe the power in it. If you can get a buck to the 150, 170 range, just having his genetics in your gene pool really helps i think your future buck crop and you know it's only going to be a percentage of your bucks but anytime you can get a buck with superior genetics and him him putting that gene trait out there really helps your future buck crop and certainly you see it in the in the pen raised environments in a crazy way they're they're so specific how they do it and the size of the deer just blows my mind away gotcha all right so enough, enough of the, the small talk. So I want to get, I want to get in deep into the mind of Chris Rika and just kind of hear. I want to hear like what kind of hunter you are. Like, are you like your approach? I want to hear, you know, what does Chris do in the spring, summer, fall? How do you approach, you know, going after? Say, say it was one specific deer. Um, that's why I asked you earlier, like you said, this one was split brows, say he makes it. So what is your, what is your strategy? Like walk me through your year. Well, I would define myself as a mobile hunter. I got my first lone wolf when Jake, Jake's mentioned it on previous podcasts, the year we went down to Ohio state land. I now have three lone wolves. I just bought a modified version from I would call him one of my hunting buddies who's taught me the most. Uh, he killed a very nice deer on state land last year, and him and I have just spent a lot of time scouting and talking over the years. I also bought my first bow from him. Jake's hunted his property way back, kind of probably almost before we, before I even felt like I really knew a whole lot. But definitely a mobile hunter. Um, because I'm a mobile hunter, I don't like to limit myself to one property at all and i really enjoy the journey and just the learning process of state land i wouldn't call myself a good state land hunter jason campbell who was just on the podcast is certainly one to listen to in that arena but i'm always trying to learn from guys like him and dan infall and just further understand the state land white tails and the processes it takes to figure them out However, on private, which I've always cut my teeth on, primarily 
try to be mobile, try to adjust to the deer, try not to let them um, pattern me too much. There's certain spots I feel like you can you can ride them a little harder than others, but generally speaking, I just like to bounce around. I don't I don't want the deer knowing I'm coming. I feel like especially in Michigan, the mature ones key in on that and. Like some guys will get really excited because they've seen a mature deer multiple times. But if he's 50, 60, 70, 80 yards away, you know, he's kind of winning the game. So, sometimes it's it's definitely always fun to see him. But if those encounters happen multiple times, he, he might already have you kind of figured out in that location. So the like, likelihood of him you know, closing the distance within bow range can get tougher. So I always try to keep them guessing to the best of my ability with mobile adjustments. And then to kind of back up the process, generally, if I know about a deer and I believe I could find his sheds, I would want to try to with within reason. A lot of private land deer, you just don't have enough property to find like a match set or every shed, but you take what you get. I did, I did find a match set of a deer I might have seen in my one hunt last year, but typically I don't match up the sets. And then after shed season, it would be that's when you scout and break down the properties. If I have a new piece, that's when I want to kind of learn the new piece, see what the fall sign was after the snow melts. Might learn a little bit in the snow, but you like to wait till after you know, the snow's gone and you can see the scrapes and the fall trails kind of break the property down that way. And then if I wanted to run trail cameras on the property, whether it's private or public, I'd kind of start getting those going once summer growth starts to happen to try to figure out what I can. Mainly, I would say I like cameras just for inventory. I don't feel like they're a great tool to specifically pattern, but there's always exceptions to that rule. Um, I love to scout them from the road, but I've found there's so many properties, especially state land, that gets really hard to do. You kind of have to have the right mix of agriculture where you can see a lot of the field. If there's not hidden spots that kind of force the deer to be visible, then you have a lot better chance of seeing them from the road. And then, you know, after that, the challenge of the chess match begins, which I'd say I'm very... Uh, very much still learning about, you know, the specific ways to kill them at specific times of the season. I think I think that's the hard part because whitetails constantly adjust throughout the season, and I I have a lot of respect for the hunters who kill them in all the phases of the season. I think mm-hmm. some some guys are pretty good at killing them in the rut, and usually that's when they're most vulnerable. Some guys have really good food sources, so they can kill well late season. And then maybe some guys have like the right buck bedding for fall locations. So, you know, they're in the money on that early season. But if, if you can find ways to kill deer throughout all phases of the season, I think you're a very veteran hunter. And that's something I continue to always think about and, and try to put the pieces together. And I love, I love to just challenge buddies. How can, you know, how can we think about killing them in this phase if, if their property sets up for for that because i think each property definitely hunts better in different phases 
depending on what the property constitutes in terms of whether it's cover, food, you know, swamp, hardwoods, there's just every property so unique. So that's generally how I kind of break down. I, don't, I guess I've killed most of my bucks towards the rut, um, but I definitely am a believer in trying to figure out how you can kill them in all phases because I think it just gives you better odds and opportunities. Gotcha. So I know I know we've talked in the past in the past a little bit, Chris, because your your properties sound similar to ours as far as like a thick swamp. Is that correct? Yeah, the property I cut my teeth on and started learning, and it's still fresh. Like this, the split brow, or it's not split brow. The split G two buck. He's in that property, and it's just it's a hard property to pin them down on. Yeah. I feel like they're always they're always ahead of you, so I just respect them in there. Gotcha. I don't. I don't get as aggressive as I used to because I just felt like it decreased my chances. When when what's did the full, Chris? What's the full acre like? I know you guys hunt like forty ish of this of the swamp, and I know I mean obviously I've been out there a bunch with you, fun it with you. But the what's the ballpark the size of the whole swamp? How big is the whole the whole swamp? Probably that specific swamp is about a hundred. 220 acres I would guess okay the majority it's probably by the same it's literally probably almost the same setup that that we hunt at your property it's literally agriculture and correct if I'm wrong Chris but like agriculture on the edges of it um and 100 acre thick nasty swamp and it it's it could be that could be tough so yeah, yeah. Based on what I said earlier about how you might see a buck like 70, 80 yards away, like that's the challenge of swamps. And I have, I have one buddy that uh, I've learned a lot from QDMA events over the years. And I have one buddy that's killed some really big Michigan deer, and he always kind of said he feels like as soon as the pressure hits, a lot of the big deer go to the swamps and I, in Michigan. And I, I feel like. Swamps are just a great place for deer to survive. I think it forced me to become a better hunter because I was trying to always figure out how to hunt a swamp, and I never felt like I had the edge. I always felt like the whitetails had the edge. And once I started hunting farm country, I just kind of fell in love with it. I've gotten permission on some other pieces, and just I love the flexibility of that. I think you can kill some of the biggest bucks in the fit cover, and that's what guys like Dan Infault kind of preach, but it's uh it's they're tricky i mean you're in their bedroom and it's kind of like that silly analogy they always use with houses if you're in a person's house and you maybe move the remote well their kid their kid could have done it their wife could have done it a lot of people could have done it but if you got in my you know dresser and started moving around on my stuff in my bedroom where you took my pillow like that's when you know, I'm really going to know something's up because it's like, who's in my, you know, my, my stuff that no one's ever really messing with. And I, I feel like when you're in a big bucks bedroom, he, he's able to pick your moves off pretty quick. So swamp, swamp is fun and it's where they, the big ones are, but it's very challenging is what I've always found. That's interesting. I've never heard that analogy and I like it, but here's, here's one of my, my things. Like I've always been challenged with this in, I grew up hunting 
on wide open fields. Jake's hunted where I grew up hunted. It's extremely hard to hunt because it's open fields and it it sets up on the neck on it butts up to the Kalamazoo River and there's swamp behind it, but we don't have access to that swamp. So I've always grown up hunting that ag field. It is awesome watching deer in June, July, August, September because it's ag and there's a ton of deer. Well, we filmed a, a, a stud last year and I told Jake, I was like, man, you hunt him. No one else is down there hunting him. And he, uh, I told him, I was like, you got to kill him in the first week. If you don't kill him in the first week, you'll never see him. Well, we didn't end up killing him and a neighbor shot him almost a mile away down the river bend. And I, I just think that they push into those swamps. And I, I mean, I've preached this since we started this podcast. I love hunting low wetland areas, river bottoms, swamps. Um, like you're saying, it's where the big bucks are. And someone that's taught me a bunch is my buddy Phil Holton. And Phil kills, has been killing some big deer. And I think he's, he's kind of evolved as a hunter. Him and I used to be very much the same, just kind of pushed in. We went, we were extremely aggressive. Um, and I'm still that way. And I'm kind of, I'm evolving, like learning from guys that are way better than I am. I mean, that's why Nimrod podcasts, we're trying to, trying to learn from guys that have a lot of knowledge and know what they're doing. And Phil always is now very selective on his days that he goes in. So he might hunt 10, 15 times a year, but he's going to kill deer on those days because he knows when to move in. And to me, that's where like the balance comes in because I just love being out there, plain and simple. Like if I have a day where I can get out, I'm just going to go. If I Even if I know the weather's crappy, I don't care. I just want to, sometimes I just want to sit out there. So it's trying to challenge me to find that balance of, am I making a huge impact by going to this stand? And like you said, Chris, like going in their bedroom, I, I feel I do that too much. Um, and I just have to be more selective. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, and, and since you live close to your main property, it makes it tougher. And that was always the challenge with me. I, grew up hunting the, the swan the bedroom and i lived right next to it and for a while the house sat empty so i could just stay the night there whenever i wanted so it was just easy um it was convenient but then once i got out of my comfort zone and became more of a mobile hunter it's like i'm not i'm gonna be i'm gonna hunt more like phil holton now and i'm going to pick and choose my days when i hunt the bedroom i'm gonna hunt the bedroom on the, the high pressure cold mornings i like them even crispy like as as good as it can get those are the mornings i want to hunt the bedroom and save it for when it's good and then if i just got you know days to burn like you're talking if you got state land go hunt state land or hunt your b property get permission on you know a property you can maybe other guys hunt it so a lot of the other properties i have permission on that the piece is not getting saved it's not it's not pristine you know, no one's staying out. So in those properties, I'm going to be a little more aggressive. And I, I don't feel like I'm, you know, affecting my chances at a mature caliber deer as much if I just get in there and go for it. Because there's there's always guys doing stuff out there. And the same would go for state land, obviously. If you have a big one, 
you know, figure it out on state land. I wouldn't be jumping in there on a bad day, but I definitely have tried to hunt the bedroom a lot, like you described, Phil's style, wait for the right, right wind, right conditions. And I think the bedroom hunting, and, and we keep calling it bedroom, we're referring to swamp. Hunting swamp smart goes a long way. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's it's fun if you it's fun if you get in there and see stuff. But what I've found is over time they seem to adjust so much that my I kind of like my hunts is uh, how many deer am I seeing per hunt, and then some of the best hunters I know they talk about it's not even about how many deer you see, but are you seeing the deer, meaning the deer you want to kill, your target deer, and if if you're never hardly seeing them, then how valuable is this hunting experience? Like if you just want to be out there, that's when I would go to my B, C or even D spots just to be out there. Cause there's a lot of places you can kind of go be out there or you can even just go glass. If you really just need to be outside. Gotcha. <clears throat> so, so, Chris, just so, just so the listeners know, I mean, I, I know we were, we were college roommates and I know you really, really well. We spent a lot of time talking white tails you touched on a bunch of stuff there, right? You started you started kicking around ideal conditions, and I think it's important for everybody to know. Um, I think some of this stems from what you do on the agri business consulting side for a living, and your dad and being data driven. I mean, Chris has like self spreadsheets and data coming out as years of all the different things. The different conditions, uh, variables that his haunts for years. How many years, Chris? Like three to five to eight. There. How many years you got data on? Probably, probably three to. Well, for three, I recorded like literally everything I could, and I got it got to the point. The same was the trail cameras. I have twenty five trail cameras. I had thirty at the most. I started giving the crappy old ones away, but the data between all my observations. And then all the trail cameras, it just got to be too much. And I kind of found, over time, I found what I was looking for, I guess I would say. So I don't feel like I need to record the data like I used to. Not that I don't think it's valuable. It was just so time-consuming because I I had a long list of all the stuff I had to write down. And at that point in my career and then just in my family life, I had more time for all that. And now I don't. But thankfully, I think I put in the hard work early on when I had more time. So now I know what I'm looking for. And I don't I don't need the data to reinforce what I found. And I'll just credit most of it to Mark Drury from Drury Outdoors, one of the yep. founders. I mean, he's he's taught me and a few of my buddies so much about just how to use the data and what to look for in the data. And I started to find what he said in my own observations. And I, the cool, the coolest part wasn't necessarily once I, he taught me the things and I confirmed it from my infield observations and trail camera data, but I had some old data from before I really knew a whole lot. And when you could look back on those days sometimes and be like, Oh, I seen a big buck this day. And this is when I was hunting the same stand over and over. And, you know, now I just wouldn't do that. It's, it's so detrimental to your chances on a big one. I, I believe generally speaking. And, you know, I still ended up seeing a decent deer well out of range, of course, most of the time, but a lot of times it correlated to good weather days and 
I mean, Jordan touched on it earlier. That's what Phil's kind of switched to on his property. It's been super helpful to his success in the last couple of years. Yeah. And I, I have a few buddies that only hunt that way. I, I definitely don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with hunting a lot. I think if you want to hunt a lot and you have the time to hunt a lot, I'm all for it. I just want to see those guys have, you know, multiple op- multiple properties, hopefully, or tri-state land or something, so they're not just pounding their spots into the ground. Um, yeah. I, I, I did that. I did that as a kid in my in my bedroom and man, I just had so little success and you know, it wasn't just me pounding the spot. It was my dad. It was my brother. It was friends. And we didn't for the quality of the property. We didn't kill enough big deer that we should have. Like it's not always just about being out there in the right spot at the right time. Um, if that were the case, I think more people with good properties would always put big deer on the wall, but if you look at most Michigan houses and for guys that have hunted a lot, they'll have one, maybe two, if they're very blessed, three big bucks on the wall. And when you meet the guys with a bunch of big bucks on the wall, they're usually doing something a little different is what I've always seen. They either, they generally have really good property. They have access to a lot of properties. They know how to hunt state land like Jason Campbell or, you know, they're, they're, there's something special about what they're doing to put all those bucks on the wall. It's not it's not always just sitting out there and, and getting lucky. Like, they've, they've figured out the puzzle in one way or another. And the, those are my favorite people to pick their brain because you could say I'm detail-oriented, but I feel like next to a lot of those guys, my detail is actually very poor. Like, I have a lot to learn from guys like that still. And every time I'm around them, I try to, learn a little bit more yeah i have a i have a question for you so chris like what when you were keeping all the all this data what were like the key data points that you found that would that you would see more deer deer movement or i guess like more quality deer um on their feet like what were those key data points and then like to follow up that question like what are your like go-to hunting conditions after you know having three to five years of this data like what is it what is your like yep i'm in the woods you need to be in the woods this is this is when he's going to be moving in that bedding area or or wherever it is but i just want to know like what you found when you were when you were keeping all that data i touched on it earlier high pressure is the biggest one basically what high pressure is going to mean is a cold front and it the, the higher the pressure and the colder it is, generally the better. If it gets way, way too cold, you might not see as good of deer movement, but generally like during November when most of the guys are in the woods or if you can get a high-pressure front in October and the temperatures really drop, when that pressure peaks, so basically a storm comes through, uh, the pressure is going to start to peak usually the following day. And it's typically when it calms down after the front and you get the clear skies. That's what juries taught me, and I've, I've seen it firsthand too many times since I started following it. It's those conditions where the deer really move. I mean, I like to study and look at all different variables, but 
those type of mornings or those type of evenings are really, really hard to beat. And that can be scouting. That's why I talked about if I could have got out scouting tonight was tonight was pretty cold. Like it, they were probably on their feet. I, don't, I didn't get out, so I don't know for sure. But the cold weather just gets them moving. I think deer instinctive animals when they encounter those friends, they feel a drive to feed. And in the rut, bucks just like to run harder when it's cold. If it gets if it gets warm during the day, I think they're are chasing does more at night and pursuing does. So you know, when you can get those cold fronts during the rut, it just really increases daytime movement. And in October and December, the the high pressure of the cold front is you know getting those deer to want to feed. They they're built and designed by God to feel that drive to need to feed when those pressure fronts hit. It's kind of like a survival mechanism. Like I need to eat because it's going to be very cold for the next period of time. Gotcha. So you're taught, you touched a little bit on the rut. So I want to get your opinion on something. I've, I, we've talked to a lot of guys about this and Jake was on the call when, um, we were talking to Jason uh, Campbell, like you were, you were talking about the guy earlier. He a previous podcast. Um, he after we stopped recording, recording, I, and I wish we would have kept recording because Jake and I both were just like mind blown. After we just keep, I mean, we just we kept the guy on the phone way too long, but uh, we started talking about the rot and. Um, not only him, but several other guys have an opinion on when they think the rut is. And I'm just curious, like, before I tell you when they think it is, like, what's your what's your days that you think the rut kicks off and it's it's really going? So you want to know when, like, the rut starts, or you want to know when I believe peak rut is, or all of it? Tell me what. Tell me when you think it starts. When the peak is, I want to hear. I want to hear your thoughts. Like your days that you you want to be in the woods. Well, I'll start off with a weird one, kind of an X factor. So I read a few books when I first got into it. I actually read books, then I kind of switched to podcasts and just kept trying to learn everything I could, even from like YouTube videos and everything. But I first started reading some books and came across a few guys that talked about the early rut. And when they described it, it was the oldest dose. So I. And I do believe in this, that I've seen a little bit of support from just trail cam pictures and some experiences. My birthday is October 20th, and I feel like some of those oldest does start to show some activity early sometimes. And it's going to be a very small percentage of your doe population. But then typically, like when the main rut's starting and when the hunting's getting great, I think the the majority of breeding is going to go, say, November 6th-ish through the through about Thanksgiving. is kind of your main period with your peak around our Michigan's opening day, typically, give or take a day or two. But And I love Boone and Crockett um, data numbers on when the, when the bucks are harvested because I've always been fascinated with how do you kill a big one. Yep. And Don Hagen swears by a Habitats guy. Um, Bill Winky talks about it too. And I've heard some other guys talk about the tail end of 
the rut in Thanksgiving. So I don't know if the BNC data supports the end in Thanksgiving, but I know there's typically usually some really big bucks killed around that period because that's the tail end. But the 7th and the 8th, if I'm remembering correctly, are the two um, best days for Boone and Crockett bucks being harvested. November? So, Yeah, so that's kind of like that. Those mature bucks know that the rut is on now, so they're really starting to move and get after the does. Like the way it's kind of been broken down to me over the years and probably personal observations too, the the younger bucks, they're so funny. Like they get so excited before the rut's even started and they're just all jacked up. But those those mature bucks, they know exactly when those does are ready and go into heat and, and they don't they don't really mess around. Like they get it done. They know they know where to hide to be safe and breed the does. So that's I'd say like the sixth through the twenty fourth would kinda of be my window again with the peak rut. Uh-huh. And uh around the fifteenth. And usually if you go to buck poles or you, you talk to a lot of guys, it's amazing how many big bucks do die on the 15th every year being at the peak of breeding. But yeah, I'm curious. What did, what did those guys have to say? So everyone that I've kind of talked to and Jake, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I'm understanding and, and hearing more and more guys talk is that it is earlier. Um, and it's fascinating. Like you were just saying, like you think those big mature does come into asterisk like earlier or earlier in the season so that mid to late october so those older does are coming into estrus kind of correlates with i think with those bucks are starting to rot like they know that those older does are are coming into into estrus and they're going to start chasing um so i i've always like my favorite day to hunt is uh the 25th of october i think for some reason, I always see really good deer around that time frame. So, 24th, 25th, 26th, um, and I, and I and I think that more more does come in to asterisk around that sixth through like the fifteenth. And and guys will say the the rut's really peaked or it's really kicking in. Well, the reason that I find a lot of guys are saying that is because they're seeing a ton of fork corns, spikes, little six points chasing chasing does. Well how how many one twenty or one thirty, you know, bucks are you seeing running does? I've seen a lot of it in that earlier earlier time frame. And I mean I've the bucks that I've killed have been typically late season, but that's just because of food source and things like that. But um as far as chasing, I've always seen it much earlier. Yeah, you said so. Boone B and C says sixth and seventh of November. Seventh and eighth, I change. believe. That it might be the sixth. I'm gonna yeah, look it up while we're talking. Okay. So, to me, when you first started talking, you said like through through like the 24th and something of November. And of course, big ones are getting killed on the 15th, and that that makes sense to us as Michigan hunters because all of a sudden. There's 300,000 guys with shotguns and rifles in the woods. Yep. And if we're talking about Lower Michigan, right? Shotguns and muzzlers. And now this 450 Bushmaster thing. So basically, rifles. It's getting crazy to the point where 
you look at the, you look at that data and I immediately think it's flawed, right? Because yeah. you're putting guns out in the woods. But then hearing you say that the vet the day the biggest ones and when the, the major caveat here on the Boone and Crockett stuff is these are bucks that are being submitted to Boone and Crockett. There's probably, I mean, I'd love to know the real statistics on this. I don't know if we ever will get them, but like 50% to 100% more B and C bucks probably aren't going in that scorebook, but it's a really good bank of data to like learn from and draw from. And Chris is the one who first kind of got me into it. And really the only person who's continued to stay on me about the B and C stuff. But I think that's a fantastic <laughs> takeaway is the sixth and seventh guys. That's still stick and string season. Heck like we're yeah. not, we're not talking about guns being like swaying the data in any way that should tell you something gigantic. I think that means in and of itself, the big bucks, the B and C bucks for the most part are probably going earlier, a yeah. lot more active earlier because they're not getting smashed when they push, we put 500,000 when 500,000 of us go out with the orange army on the 15th and through that week through, you know, yeah. how that goes gun season. If they're really getting stacked up on the 6th, 7th and 8th of November, man, that means it's earlier than yeah. gun season, which is fantastic news for bow hunters, right? <laughs> it is. But, and the other thing, so, like, like you were saying, Jake, I think it is like when I when he was Chris was saying that like I, I was like first initial thought same as you it's skewed and then the other thing you said Higgins and Winky are talking about you know Thanksgiving time a lot get killed well obviously most people have Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday off of work so you're having an, another influx of deer hunters in the woods people traveling home for Thanksgiving hunting family farms for the first time they've been out all year so I. It's interesting, but six. But when you pivot off that, and you think about the six, seventh, and eighth. Like that's not anything crazy special. No. Like that's just that's, there's something there. A major, major takeaway. I think you're right, Jordan. Like Jason Campbell said. Like I think he was talking to like Dante, the founder of Lone Wolf, and those guys were hammering through the middle of October as like the time when they were shooting their big ones. Yeah. But I think that it'll to. First week of November is your mega hot spot for on the feet chasing activity for monster mature Michigan bucks. And I think after after that, your chances really your hottest chances are gonna be like we just talked about earlier, first couple days before they've even before anything's really gotten crazy, no pressure yet. You catch them after you've been scouting them for a month and a half, two months, or late season like we've seen at your place, Jordan, right? Yeah. They they just you know, the patterns change, the, the, it's more food-based driven, it's easier to kind of find what they're doing and stuff and pattern a little bit more, but yeah, yeah I think that that's really good stuff, Chris. I mean, that, except an eighth, I don't even know if you've ever told me that before. I'm kind of disappointed. <laughs> He's holding out, yeah. Jake. <laughs> it's funny, I, I sent, uh, I sent my, can- I have this stuff like permanently hardwired into my calendar, my, um, iCal for Apple and it is the seventh and the eighth. Now I have a I have a chart in a Boone and Crockett manual I got for Christmas a while ago. So the sixth the week of November sixth would be the highest bow date for years um, two thousand and nine through two thousand twelve. Um, then the week of the thirteenth is the 
the peak number of BNC entries, and then the week of the 27th is um, the second most, or sorry, the third most. So it's like those three weeks, which again, I mean, may, maybe, um, I'm pretty sure it was Higgins who first said it, or, or Winky, because I have their names written down with it, that the record, um, Booner Days. But uh, at, if you're talking with a bow, those are your best opportunities according to this chart and what I have hardwired into my calendar. I don't, I don't know if I've seen numbers for like the entire history of Boone and Crockett, but either way, like that's a, just a great time to be in the woods. And I, I just like that whole week of like the third through the ninth. And I back to what Andre said, and I've heard Drury talk about it too, about killing him in October. And I mentioned it early on in the podcast. If you have like a buck bedroom and Jordan, Jordan and I got to chat in person. Finally, Uh, we haven't seen each other in person for seven years, which is crazy to hard to believe, but that was how long it was. And we ended up talking about a buck bedroom on a property that he has access to hunt and how a lot of the hunters that can hunt there have killed a lot of deer around that buck bedroom, and they, they really respect it. I think if you have a buck bedroom on your property or a buck is lived like me, and to me, a buck living on your property typically means you have a good number of daylight pictures of that buck on your trail cameras if you're running them. And if you do hunt and you hunt smart and well, you have good odds of seeing that deer in October. I really do believe, and I know Mark Drury killed his biggest buck danger in October, and this is a guy who has unlimited food plots and everything, but he got real aggressive in October and killed danger. October is a very good time to kill those deer because their range is a lot a lot more shrunken. As soon as the rut hits, these mature deer, they know where the hot does are. I think they know kind of when they go into heat from year to year and they have a very good nose so they can smell any new ones that they're not as familiar with pretty far away. So their range explodes and, you know, it's happened to me tons. It's happened to buddies. Like you might totally lose pictures of a buck on your trail camera during the rut. Hmm. It just, it just depends. And my father-in-law, um, killed a really nice deer that was kind of the first deer that got me into it. And that was the case with that deer. Um, I had tons of pictures of him in October. I had some pictures of him in December. He was definitely more weary, but I hardly had any November pictures of that deer. And I'll usually get, now that I have so many cameras, I'll usually get some new deer in November too on my cameras. But you definitely lose, like I lose deer every year come November and it's not just because of gun season it's it's because they're they're out covering ground so if, if they're on your property in October and you feel confident you can get it done it's a great window and, and Jordan you hinted on it on October 25th like that last week of October is a really good opportunity to capitalize on that October um, buck movement because I think what's starting to happen is the bucks are getting antsier. They want to move more, but the does aren't as fully ready. So, you know, that they're increasing their daylight movement. And I, I think if I've learned anything in the past seven, seven years since I really got serious in 2012, you can't, 
you can't really kill bucks well when they're hanging out in their bed all day unless you're gonna do like a Dan Infault style and walk up to them with a gun and shoot them in their bed like they're they're really hard to kill if they're not getting out of their bed very much in daylight so once they start walking more is some of your greatest opportunities to kill them and that's why typically November is the popular time to hunt bucks because they cover a lot more ground during daylight hours yeah and I, I know that to be true because, and like you're saying, like if you, if once that rut hits, you know, you could be chasing a buck all October, all early November, and he could be gone. He could disappear because, and it's not simply because he got shot, it's because he's just moving. Their range, I, I think, is way bigger than we think during that rut. I know Andy killed, uh, had like 21 or 22 inch inside spread, 10 point last year and he saw it the previous year but he saw it one time the previous year and it was within a day or two of the time that he actually the day he actually shot it so it was almost exactly a year prior and he saw it one time and then he ended up killing it the next time he saw it and it was a deer that nobody had on trail cam phil runs trail cameras josh runs trail cameras phil's uncles run trail cameras and this deer just wasn't showing up like never seen him and then one day he runs by and andy dumps him i mean just crazy a deer that we had no idea was even remotely in the area we thought he ran through that one year chasing a hot doe and that was it and then you know here it is one year almost to the day and he comes running back by and andy ends up capitalizing on him so it's interesting. It's crazy. Yeah, that's uh, um, back to Drury and Higgins. They both kind of taught me that with trail cam data. They try to use like this year's trail cam data help prepare them for the. So this is 2019 hunting season this year. They they're going to use this year's data to prepare them for 2020 hunting season. Or if they have multiple years of history, they're using it to prepare for the future season. But basically this year's trail cam data is old like if you got a daylight picture of a deer say october 1st but you weren't in the tree october 1st is over so there's no guarantee that october 1st is going to repeat on october 3rd or 4th if you have time to hunt those days but look to to andy's story this deer will for whatever reason they have like this weird clock in their head and i for, at least I believe it for hot does like bucks kind of know when certain does are going into heat so they're going to try to be in those areas if they're not still tied up with their previous hot doe they're going to try to hit those areas at times and maybe bucks even have some sort of calendar in their head for when they like to go on excursions which is something I've read about in some articles over time like why do bucks go two miles or three miles from their home range maybe it's just a mile but those are kind of a weird thing that deer do that kind of hard to explain or put your head around like what what makes sense for a buck to go that far from his normal range but in andy's case it resulted in a kill and it's it's a sweet thing like if you got a daylight picture of a deer that you don't know much about any given day try it again the following season and maybe you have a chance 100 percent. i know that i'm gonna try to do that more this year we've our number one buck last year was extremely visible and the times that he was visible was it was crazy it's like 10 30 to one o'clock in the afternoon is when he was moving 
on our property. I mean, we're walking through wide open food plots that were going dormant and he was just cruising through, but it was times that we weren't in the stand or, you know, we might've been there, you know, an hour earlier or whatever it might be, or we walked by that stand to go somewhere where we thought he was. And it's, I I believe that a hundred percent using previous year trail camera. That's why it's so important to have every date timestamp correct on your cameras. Correct. Yep. You want them right. They're, they're kind of, I mean, you, if you just use them for inventory, then it's okay. But if you actually want to use a trail camera to help you kill a deer, I, I think that's when it matters the most. Yeah. So, all right, guys, I don't want to keep either of you too much longer. I mean, being dads and all, it's kind of a busy life sure. for both of you. <laughs> So, it's up to you. It's up to you, man. Um, I know I, Jake's got the new baby, so I don't. But you know, we don't get a lot of chances to do this, so I'll go. I'll go as long as you want me to go. All right. Don't I'll, feel like you gotta right. cut me off short. I'll be fine. <laughs> all right. I I got like two more questions I'll ask you. So I know you and I were kind of in a text message with. I don't know if we'll call him our friend, but more of an acquaintance. Acquaintance Wade. Um, he, uh, he, uh, we were talking about, um, crossbows and you, you made a comment about, um, something about Fred bear and if he would be disappointed, you ask me, I believe. And I want to know kind of your thoughts just on hunting in general, like, where where do you see this going? Do you think it's positive right now, negative? Um, and as like a re- reference, do you think Fred Bear would be happy with the way hunting is right now? I just kind of want to know your thoughts. I'm gonna play a little bit of devil's advocate here because I think Chris, we we kind of have the same, we see things the same way when in regards to this. But I just kind of wanna I want to pick your brain on that. Yeah, I think I think Fred Bear would be disappointed because I think hunting camp was kind of a big part of hunting for a long time. Um, ironically, I have a friend here in Chelsea. His family has hunted with the Bear family, and his uncle um, knew Fred. And you know, he lo- he loves to bring that up. So him and I talk about it a decent bit. And, and a lot of the stories are like deer camp and them hunting together. And I know since I got onto this craze of chasing mature deer and kind of why I bought the Boone and Crockett books and just cared a lot about scoring bucks and all that stuff, you know, the, the longer I do it, I, I don't, that's not why it, it's not why it matters. I, I do like that Risky Outdoors is founded on kind of getting family and friends involved. I, I really do think that's what it's about. I mean, as a, as a man and a person who likes to push himself, I still always want to try to chase the mature animals, and that's kind of the, the goal or the aim. But I think with food plots, um, cellular trail cameras, bows that shoot incredibly fast, crossbows that are deadly accurate. Oh, what else do we have? I mean, we, we just, all these scent, um, 
whether the scent products work or not, all of these scent products to help us, you know, try to beat the whitetail's nose. Like the number of gadgets we have nowadays have just made it so possible to chase the deer that we do now. I, I think the only good thing about the trend of the industry is we now have much better odds of killing big deer um because of all these tools but i think hunting camp and like the traditions of the sport are are fading fast and i have one buddy who's trying to keep something like that going big time and i know you guys are going out west to do your mule deer hunt which is really cool like that i think that kind of stuff is really important in the sport but i think it's faded for a lot of people yeah so do you do you think that he would be disappointed in the technology aspect or do you think he would be disappointed in the aspect of it's no longer like a community thing anymore? Well, I think he would primarily be disappointed in just how much we're letting technology influence our sport. And I, I think technology doesn't only influence hunting, it influences all of society and hunting's just a part of that you know, influencing thing. I, I can't believe how much technology has changed our lives and our lifetime, period. Like, really, it's kind of a weird side note, but a really popular show on Netflix right now is Stranger Things. And it goes back to the 80s when I was born. And just the 80s were so different than today, and even the 90s. And the world has changed really fast, and the hunting industry is a big part of that. That's why I think we've lost a lot of traditions like hunting camp and stuff because it's it's become more self-focused. And when it becomes more self-focused, it's about how many inches can you put on the wall. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think that's, you know, and, and you and I have talked about that. I'm I'm big on like um, just I, I like hunting with people like. I've invited more more than probably I should have people out to hunt my our farm or our our swamp. Um, and it's and there's a lot of guys out there that are that don't want that. You know, they're like, no, that's mine. I don't want anyone else t- setting foot on it type thing. And that's not what it's about. I would I would much rather have Jake. Or even you, Chris, I mean, I, I really want you to come out and just hunt, just even if it's a day with Jake and I, just to go out there and, you know, if one of you shot Merlot, I'm telling you what, I would be just as happy as if I were to shoot him or Cassandra shoot him. She would be just as happy. Um, and that's that's where everyone needs to, to get to. I mean, this is... I'm not saying that you need to let people hunt your land, but nobody owns a deer. That's the biggest thing that guys I see fall into. It's like, oh man, that was my buck. Well, no, that's that's not true. It's it's not yours. And I think that's what if you know Fred Bear was disappointed. I don't think it would be the the technology aspect. It would be more so the the community aspect and the. I don't know what the word of like someone own the the possession aspect of of hunting is. I, what I think he would be disappointed in. So yeah, I think I think trail cameras have made us possessive. We start to feel like these deer are ours because we get a picture of them, and it's yeah. a it's kind of a foolish insight. Like, I mean, if I had 
if if we all had bucks on the wall for all the trail cam pictures we had, man, I, I used to save all my buddies' trail cam pictures when I was just really into it, and I hardly save any anymore. I'll save, like, buck kills that really mean a lot to me and whatnot, but I used to save everything, and, I mean, just so many trail cam pictures and so much lust for those deer once you get the pictures, and it, it's crazy what they do to you. Like, they kind of make you possessed over it, but... In reality, I mean, I, I hinted at it earlier. It's the daylight pictures that give you some inclination that you're going to have an okay chance of killing that deer. But if they're only nighttime pictures, it's really hard to even say that that deer is on your property much during daylight at all. So if he's not on your cameras in daylight, what are the odds that you're going to, you know, you're going to be in the stand, the wind's going to be right, everything's going to go right, no deer are going to smell or see you. And you're going to kill that deer that day. Certainly there's exceptions to that. I don't want to, like, you know, discourage people that they never have a chance. But just generally speaking, like, just because you get a trip and picture of a deer, you got to be careful to think that you're going to actually kill it. Yeah. And, and I mean, that that's the weird thing about the camera pictures. I, I think before there was this wonder of deer hunting, like, what am I going to go out there and see today? Unless it's a deer you had seen previously in that hunting season. But now we kind of, between glassing and trail cameras, we pretty much know what we're after most of the time. Like, that's why Andy's story you shared earlier is kind of cool. Like, it's a buck no one knew about, which makes it exciting, right? Yeah. Yep. Definitely. All right. Well, I'm going to ask, this is a question for both of you. So it's kind of deep, but what's, what's the one legacy that you guys want to leave behind for your boys in the hunting industry? Like what's, what's the one thing that you guys want to strive for that they get to experience that you are experiencing or have got to experience? Um, you know, I'm like, I'm like two and a half, three days into this whole fatherhood thing. <laughs> you know, I'd be lying to you if I, you know, I know some Chris and I've talked about on the spiritual side a lot before too, but you know, that, that heritage and legacy and the blessing of like passing it on your faith and I think your perspective on life is a huge, huge piece of it. And for us, hunting is such a big piece of who we are. That's something that really drives us. Um, but I hope that, you know, my my boy, my kids, um, someday will be able to look at kind of my experience and the way that they got into it. And hopefully, you know, the legacy that I passed on to them was, you know, dad, like, really loved the blessing that God gave him, the opportunities that God gave him to spend out in his creation, take it in. And I think beyond that, there's this like manhood struggle and this battle with this really amazing animal that is a white tail mature buck. And I think we set our, we set our sights on that. It's a way we can like feed this competitive urge in our competitive bone that for a lot of us, um, amateur athletes that kind of fades off after you know high school and college it's a way for us to battle something but I think it's like an amazing incredible perspective on like mastering your craft right and this idea that like the whole I, Chris and I've talked about this too before but the whole 10,000 hours thing right like 
you don't have the time on task. If you're not fully and totally committed and first and open to new ideas and finding ways to get better every it's not every day if it's as off as you possibly can getting stretched you know whether it's for you know the kingdom or whether it's for your your hunting abilities and your skills for next fall chasing this buck whatever it is like if that can bleed into life in any way that's kind of what i'd love for my kids to be able to pull out of dad's experience uh and taking watching dad do this hunting thing right this cool hobby is such a gift um is that how much commitment it really takes and how that really can impact the more important things in your life you know awesome yeah i i agree that's cool jake i like it what, what about you chris just, just on the hunting side of things, I really hope that my son uh, kind of falls in love with shed hunting. It's something I've done, and my favorite thing about shed hunting is you can take as many people out there as you want when you do it and just find them and do it together. I think where I'm at my hunting journey, it's, a, it's about people and others. Trying, to, I hope my son is doesn't necessarily get as self-focused as I did for a period. I want, like you talked about how you like inviting others out to your property. I hope, I hope that's how my son is. I hope he doesn't get all about the inches, but that he cares about the others. Um, I hope that when he is still, like a lot of guys talk about when they're 20 feet up, they're closer to God or that's their church. I hope that, when he is still, especially with technology taking over like it is, that when he's still out there, that he actually meets with God. Because I, I haven't gotten to hunt near to the level that I prefer in the last year, and that's been shed hunting and just everything. And I think one of the hard things for me is I haven't gotten to be still like I like. And I, I think a lot of guys can relate to just being out there, whether they believe in God or not, but just getting away from all the stresses of life is a, is a big deal. Uh, a lot of people's work wears them out. Sometimes family situations are tough, but just getting away and being out there is a precious thing, something I've missed a lot lately. But I hope when my son's out there that he can find that time to you know meet his God and know him in a different level because with technology and all the things getting at us, it's getting really hard to just unplug. I did it on a vacation recently and it felt good to not have a phone and not connect um, to, to everything around us. Cause you always just feel connected nowadays. So, you know, I hope, I hope that he thinks about others when he's hunting and it's, it's a big part of it for him. And it's also a family bond because my wife is a hunter like yours, Jordan. And, uh, I don't know if my daughter will get into it or not. That's up to her. But I really hope that, you know, my son just experiences that family bond hunting and that when he's out there, he can truly meet with his God because it's a rare, rare thing nowadays to just be quiet in a tree. And we probably won't have any people listen to the podcast who've never hunted, most likely, but you never know. But 
you know, a lot of people who don't hunt don't understand that side of our sport, what it's like to just get out there and be still and watch nature and watch the sun, you know, rise or the sunset. There's something special about our sport that that um, provides with each and every hunt. And I don't like turkey hunting near as much as deer hunting. And I like fishing down in Florida a lot, but the thing about being outside that's special is every time is unique. They're never the same. And it just, God puts on a show every time we get out there. And I, I think that's why we all love it. Like it's just a unique experience that you can't replicate anywhere else. It's, it's very hard to experience what you experience in the outdoors. And I know some people try with hiking and things of that nature, but and you're just out there and you're real still in the whitetail woods. It's a special thing. The shows that get put on for you and the quiet you experience. So I, I hope my son and the busyness of life can really experience that because the older I get, I'm finding it's just harder and harder to make time to do that. It's just kind of a shame, but life, life is tricky and it changes a lot on you. For sure. Really fast, really fast too, because I was hunting. 45-ish times for like 45 sits a year for like three or four straight years and uh, you know it's, it's not going to be that anymore and it's probably going to be a while before I ever get back to that if, if I have the time to yeah that's Good awesome stuff. that's awesome no I, I agree with you guys you guys both I think like Chris is saying just the stillness like you don't you don't have to you know believe in anything but like when you're out there like there is just something about sitting there being still and it's it's crazy and everybody that hunts knows what you were just talking about like just think seeing things come to life and the woods come alive and you get a there's a feeling to it it's weird to explain but there is like you actually feel something when you're out there and just being able to shut everything off in just sit and like be in your own thoughts and stuff it's it's super cool and like you're saying a lot of those people that probably won't listen to this podcast non-hunters like just they don't understand that side of kind of who hunters are and it and it's probably i would argue that it's probably one of the top like two three things that are most important about what we do and what hunters do and and why hunters love what we do so interesting yeah i think I think like you know i've got a lot of buddies that i talk hunting with a lot and i think that's kind of why we like talking about it so much because you you unplug from hunting and hunting season's only so many months a year and you like you miss that and like when i get in the grind of hunting whatever it is whether it's turkeys or deer like there's something about that grind and that next morning you just long for it because you start to like that side of life and when season ends it's back to the you know the grind the nine five just you're not getting out there and being still it's very different yeah um so yeah it's it's a special thing just to get out there definitely all right well fellas i gotta wrap it up um We'll, we'll definitely have to do this again. Chris, you'll have to come out and hunt with Jake and I. It's all about the community, man, and just, just the fellowship. So we want you to just come out and visit, even if it's just for a day and in, in, in an evening sit or something. Um, we want you out there. So, um, again, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on, bud. I appreciate it. Yeah, 
My pleasure, man. Glad we could do it. Thanks for being flexible. Glad I got to catch up with you um, the other day at Jake's house. And uh, congrats, Jake, on the new boy. Look forward to seeing all the memories you and Joshua get to build together over the years. Heck yeah, dude. Congrats. It's so cool. You're a dad. Yeah, appreciate it, fellas. Good talk. Again, thanks, Chris, for coming on. Uh, we appreciate it. Jake, again, congrats on the new new baby boy. Um, guys, get over to Apex Gear. Pick yourself up some some gear. Use promo code RISKY, capital R-I-S-K-E, to receive 20% off your purchase. We would appreciate it. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. I know it was a little bit longer, but uh, I love just chatting with Chris and Jake and just kind of hearing their stories. So, Again, thank you guys for tuning in. Stay stealthy and strive to become a Nimrod. Mm-hmm.